This is the Return to Order Moment with Edwin Benson. Bringing you insights, analysis, and information for a culture in crisis. Why is Wall Street dooming America to a socialist future? For generations, the press depicted Wall Street as a group of greedy men ready to do anything to make a profit. Even today, pieces of that reputation remain. In fact, modern leftists cannot decide whether to applaud or hiss when they see a radical billionaire. The hissing is a remnant of an old attitude towards Wall Street. No one trusts someone who is so greedy that they accumulate that much money. The applause comes because so many of those billions are being funneled into leftist causes. Indeed, it seems that Wall Street's biggest players are trying to destroy the system that made them rich. Mr. John Horvat analyzed the situation in his essay, Why is the financial sector destroying corporate America? We must stop the ESG tyranny. The greatest enemy of America's financial future is not any foreign nation, a government regulator, or a dangerous ideologue. The existential threat to America today is the woke financial establishment. It is presently politicizing business and weaponizing investment in policies that will have a devastating effect on America and the world. Big business has always tended to be politically liberal. Over the decades, major companies have supported causes that seemed to work against their self-interest. Such action has rarely prevented them from registering profits or jeopardizing stockholders' investments. Many thought that by groveling to these leftist causes, they might buy the support of rich liberals and favorable media. There was always a calculation with an eye on a return on investment. Moreover, these causes are very unpopular among American consumers and the general public. Companies used to exercise some caution, fearing of backlash from appearing too radical. The danger of saying, go woke, go broke, was only too real. However, those pushing for change are now employing different tactics that sidestep public rejection. The forces being brought to bear upon corporate America come not from corporate boardrooms, but activist index funds suddenly empowered as enlightened stakeholders. Politicized investment managers want to call the shots and push companies to toe the leftist line. The new financial offensive seeks to destroy from within the powerful yet staid business establishment. Turning corporate America against itself is the way liberals hope to hasten the process of making everyone woke real fast. The strategy involves changing the metrics by which investors evaluate companies. Traditionally, corporations sought to safeguard shareholder investment by following financially sound practices and minimizing significant risks. The new metrics are ideological, not financial. Thus, profits are at the bottom of the list of priorities, while politically correct opinions occupy the top. The key component of this strategy is the ESG rating system. This recent social credit system evaluates firms on their compliance with environmental, social, and governance, or ESG, targets. 
The company may have a stellar balance sheet, but if its ESG rating is less than perfect, it can lead to the choking off of credit or investment opportunities. Worse yet, investment managers controlling vast numbers of shares can use the ESG ratings against corporate boards during shareholder meetings to force compliance with liberal causes. The most powerful forces of the ESG dictatorship are the massive index funds. The big three investment managers are BlackRock, Vanguard, and State Street, all of them under woke management. Together, they control more than $20 trillion in investment assets. Their influence is such that one of the big three is the largest shareholder in 90% of public companies. They can command between 20 to 25% of the shareholder votes in the S&P 500 companies. The big three boast about their power and are only too willing to vote out corporate directors who failed to live up to ESG standards involving climate and diversity. With such powerful voices at stockholder meetings, the index funds threaten to control the financial establishments. They can dry up funds for fossil fuel companies or limit investments. They can adapt their agendas to include union demands, Chinese interest, or any bona fide leftist causes that appear on the horizon. Also on board with the ESC tyranny are the three largest credit rating companies. These agencies man the spigots that influence the flow of money not only to firms, but to state and local governments. Despite excellent financial practices, any state government with top-heavy investments in oil or carbon-intense industries risks a credit downgrade. Indeed, ESG wizards sometimes manipulate what looks like objective quantitative metrics to back up their claims. However, Many analysts admit that what determines a rating must often rely upon subjective judgments rather than objective financial assessments. The injustice of the credit rating sentences has prompted many state governments to challenge the ESC rulings. Utah, for example, has an excellent record in managing its finances and has long held the highest possible credit rating, which allowed it to borrow money at low rates. Nevertheless, in a recent op-ed in the Wall Street Journal, Utah Treasurer Marlow Oaks sounded the alarm on how the new ESC criteria have weaponized credit access to serve a subjective political agenda. Such concentration of arbitrary power threatens state sovereignty. Thus, Utah and other states are taking legal action to stop this usurpation of power. West Virginia has fired BlackRock from its investment boards over ESG concerns and Chinese entanglements. States like Texas are demanding fair treatment for the financing of fracking and oil interests crucial to their state's interests. Congress will soon be looking at the issue, 
The Senate is debating the Investor Democracy is Expected Act, in which index firms' shareholder votes would need to reflect actual investors' opinions and not the arbitrary whims of their woke directors. All of these measures are very welcome. However, they do not answer the question, why is the woke financial establishment destroying corporate America? The nation is recovering from a pandemic, involved in a war, suffering inflation and polarization. Weaponizing finance to pursue leftist ideological utopias is the last thing America needs. The Wall Street leftists described in the last essay carry many so-called progressive banners. One of those causes is erroneously referred to as reproductive health. The left insists on maintaining the massive abortion industry. This is curious because a rising population is one of the best signs of a prosperous society. More people mean more workers and more customers. Mr. Horvat looks at this peculiar position in his essay, How Wall Street is Building an Abortion Apartheid Regime. Two of the most sacred tenets of a liberal economy are the notions of moral neutrality and free markets. Wall Street does not get involved in personal beliefs and mores because it is bad for business. As long as the right of property and contracts are respected, the classical liberal is unconcerned with clashing religious beliefs. In the words of Thomas Jefferson, quote, It does me no injury for my neighbor to say that there are twenty gods or no god. It neither picks my pocket nor breaks my leg, unquote. Thus, the liberal businessman is only looking for sales and profits. This is not to say that big business has always followed this dictum. This constant trade with communist countries is an example of how big business supports immoral and oppressive regimes that pick pockets, break legs, and maintain unfree markets. When it comes to the left, big business violates its own liberal rules. However, most businesses outside the liberal establishment try to avoid the culture wars preferring to sell to both sides while staying out of the crossfire. This time of moral neutrality is ending. Public companies will soon be forced to make decisions bearing on moral issues, even when they hurt their bottom lines. They will soon be violating free markets by refusing to serve carved-out sectors that do not conform to leftist moral standards. As mentioned in the last essay, the threat comes from giant index funds and activist investors telling board members how to run their businesses and select their markets. Many conservatives have complained about what is called the ESG rating system. This liberal compliance tool rates companies on how they comply with environmental, social, and corporate governance ESG targets. 
With the Roe versus Wade controversy, some activist stockholders are adding an A for abortion to the ESG acronym. With the restrictions on procured abortion, more and more activists and index funds will be interrupting stockholder meetings with pro-abortion proposals. The new radicals will be breaking the liberal economic rule by introducing the culture wars into financial domains. Public companies should safeguard the interests of stockholding owners, not social justice activists who want to destroy the free market and hurt their bottom lines. Of particular concern are the managers of giant index investment firms, who can use their vast numbers of shares against corporate boards during shareholder meetings. The big three index funds are BlackRock, Vanguard, and State Street, all suffering under woke management. Together, they manage more than $20 trillion in assets. The activists are framing the abortion debate in financial terms to give the appearance of propriety. For example, they are asking mainstream firms like Lowe's and Walmart to compile reports evaluating the costs of restricting abortion on employee hiring and retention. Fortunately, this proposal failed, with only 13% of votes in favor at Walmart and 32% at Lowe's. These initial efforts signaled the will of activists to turn abortion into an economic issue in much the same way that they have weaponized environmental and diversity concerns to force companies to submit to non-economic metrics. The suggested actions go beyond mere impact reports. With enough votes, the activists can change boards of directors or decide marketing strategies. According to a recent Wall Street Journal article, the new revolutionaries can even dictate where companies do business. Whole sectors of the nation could be cut off. Thus, Activists, for example, recently asked companies to reveal if they will be closing or expanding operations in states where abortion will be banned or restricted. Such measures would destroy a free market and create ghetto zones where woke companies dare not tread. It would segregate consumers, creating a cultural apartheid system based on people's beliefs. Abortion promoters complain that those who defend life impose their morality upon the population. The new stockholder revolutionaries hope to impose their immoral law upon the people. They set themselves up as autocrats, where the rule of sin and vice determine policy in the marketplace. The enormous power of the dollar is put at the service of those who destroy life in this new abortion apartheid regime. The revolutionaries do not only change company policy, but also distort economic reality. The effort to frame the debate in financial terms likewise imposes skewed economics on the nation. The impact of allowing children to be born does not hurt the economy. 
On the contrary, the economy improves. Every new child is one more American, family member, consumer, student, neighbor, friend, worker, and most importantly, one more immortal soul for whom God has eternal and wonderful designs. The ESGA activists hold a strange notion of economics. What company would think it economically beneficial to kill instantly 63 million customers who would buy their products and man their factories over a lifetime? The ticking time bomb of declining populations is threatening the world. Indeed, companies would do well to commission studies that analyze the impact of imploding demographics on the economy. More children, not less, would safeguard shareholder interests and the common good of society. They would also discover that a moral America dedicated to virtue and respecting God's law is also a prosperous nation blessed by providence. Another aspect of this strange relationship between Wall Street and the social policy is the so-called student loan crisis. Back in 1958, some government functionaries thought that loaning college students money would be a good way to create more rocket scientists. The Soviets had just launched Sputnik and America panicked. Being communist, universities in the Soviet Union did not charge tuition. Bright young men and women were sent to university without regard for their financial status. The functionaries argued that we needed to do something to correct this imbalance, so the federally guaranteed student loan was born. Today, that program is a victim of its own success. It has grown dramatically, and thousands of graduates complain that they are unable to pay back their loans. They argue that government action is necessary, and President Biden agrees. In the debate, one important question remains unasked. Mr. Horvath asks it in his essay, Can anyone tell me what is a loan? News commentator Matt Walsh has just released a document titled, What is a Woman? He interviews many in the woke establishment, asking for a clear and concise reply to this simple question. The answers are full of academic gobbledygook and politically correct jargon about social constructs and gender identity. None of those he interviewed gave him a straightforward answer about what a woman is. Mr. Walsh should do a follow-up documentary with a different question. Something simpler. Instead of sinking into the impossible quagmire of gender ideology, maybe he could deal with something much more practical and urgent. Perhaps an economic question. The question would be, what is a loan? Can anyone say what is a loan? It should not be difficult to get a straight answer, since it involves a simple agreement between two consenting parties. Most people should know what a loan is. Americans have abided by these rules for generations. However, the roaming scholar wandering around governmental and academic offices seeking clarity and definition would probably face a similar Matt Walsh trial. Today, 
many waffle in their definitions. This especially applies to student loans. What makes the matter urgent is the $1.75 trillion in student loans now owed by some 46 million Americans as of April 6, 2022. Most students found these loans to be the easiest way to secure a degree from which they expected an excellent job. The mechanics of these loans are also relatively simple. It involves money being advanced to a student that must later be paid back with interest. The government has facilitated these transactions for decades. However, government officials today have forgotten what a student loan is. They are attributing characteristics to these loans that they never had before. Moreover, the administration threatens to forgive student loans by executive order just in time for the midterm elections. It is not the loan, but the people that have changed. Indeed, many people, especially liberals, have become loan deniers. The more rabid loan deniers believe that loans are instruments of injustice. They cause people to suffer because they must be paid back. Loans are unfair. Anyone who does not secure an excellent job after studying four years of anthropology is a victim. Because of the grave injustice suffered, the loan agreement becomes null and void. Greed also invalidates loans. Greedy banks, unscrupulous university recruiters, or for-profit educational institutions must be made to atone for their sins of avarice. In this scenario, the students are always the victims of injustice, the oppressed, the exploited, and the marginalized. The oppression in the system forced them into signing the loan agreement. They should not be obliged to honor it, especially at their tender age. It is a matter of justice and fundamental human rights. Another kind of loan denier is less radical in its demands. Its advocates call for partial forgiveness of the debt obligations. To them, the loan is a subsidy given by the government to help students who are the victims of injustice and hardship. Thus, it would be nice and feel good if the government could partially eliminate the total student debt load. The present proposal to give each graduate a $10,000 write-off would be an excellent gesture to help struggling adults who would undoubtedly be grateful, at least until the demand for the next subsidy. To the subsidy crowd, a loan is a financial fiction that people sign knowing they do not have to pay it back entirely. All that is required is for a graduate to make some effort, however minimal, and then let the taxpayer pay the rest. To the more politically minded, loans are excellent incentives for participation in the political process. It is no secret that many liberals are talking about student loan forgiveness as a way of attracting young people to the midterm elections. 
a benefit given at the time of an election to attract people to a cause is the definition of a bribe, not a loan. In years past, local government offered free rides to the polling station, free pizza or other food on election day then joined the excitement. Today's government officials think on a grander scale, $10,000 in student loan forgiveness. To these bribe loan deniers, the state's role is not to facilitate the common good, but to benefit the individual. If the government offers benefits and bribes, the individuals reciprocate, showering their gratitude upon and casting their votes for the more generous politician. Votes and benefits go hand in hand. It makes people happy. Finally, there will always be those academics that will claim that a loan is a social construct. It's your loan and my loan, the financial app for your truth and my truth. A loan involves a payback obligation only to the extent that the loan recipient thinks it does. The social construct argument is an easy and irrational way to deny reality, especially when that reality is attached to a $100,000 obligation to repay. Thus, just imagining the loan away is enough to invalidate the contractual agreement. The problem with the question, what is a loan, is not the loan part, but the is. When saying something is, the nature of a thing is being addressed. Rights and obligations are deduced from that nature. If something is alone, it cannot be something else, no matter how much anyone imagines the contrary. If something is alone, it must conform to its nature of advancing money in exchange for an obligation to return the principal with interest. If something is alone, then it is a contract between two parties that assumes that both have honor and will abide by the terms of the loan agreement. To break the agreement is to bring dishonor upon a person, and this dishonor is much more the problem than the dollar amounts attached to the loan. Indeed, any loan that violates its nature is a lie, and the offending parties are shameful liars. This concludes, Why is Wall Street Dooming America to a Socialist Future? Thank you so much for listening. Return to Order, of which this podcast is only a part, strives to be a source of light in a dark and disordered world. Your prayers are appreciated. If you have enjoyed this podcast, we ask you to subscribe and give us a five-star rating with the service through which you are listening to it. Increased subscriptions and high ratings mean that more people will be directed to the Return to Order moment when searching for new podcasts. So, by rating us, you can help Return to Order be more effective. In addition, subscribers gain access to all the previous episodes of the Return to Order moment. We would also like to recommend the book, which spells out the motivations behind our work. Mr. John Horvath's book, Return to Order, is available as a free download through our website, www.returntoorder.org or in printed and recorded form through our bookstore.
All rights are reserved. Copyright 2022 by the American Society for the Defense of Tradition, Family, and Property. TFP.